Good morning, <clears throat> good afternoon, nice to see you all. I'd like to talk today about the uh, Heart Sutra that we chant every morning, alternating between the Japanese and the English. Heart of Great Perfect Wisdom Sutra, the Makahanya Haramita Shingyo. And uh, I want to start with some words from Kaz Tanahashi and his book, The Heart Sutra, which I would recommend. The Heart Sutra by Kaz Tanahashi. Just to sort of set, set the scene a little bit about how important the sutra is in our tradition. This is Kaz speaking. The chapter is called Encountering the Enigma. The first time I chanted the Hat Sutra was during the morning service after Zen meditation at the Diamond Sangha in Honolulu. Robert Aiken and his wife Anne had a small meditation group there. They sat on the ground floor of their beautiful home surrounded by lush tropical plants in a residential area of the city. It was 1964, a few days after I had, I had first ventured outside Japan at the age of 30. Reciting the Heart Sutra in Japanese and then in English, I was happy to harmonize with the American meditators' rhythmic chanting. It was also confusing. Emptiness, emptiness, no eyes, no ears. What could this mean? D.T. Suzuki put it succinctly. What superficially strikes us most while pursuing the text is that it is almost nothing else but a series of negations and that what is known as emptiness is pure negativism, which ultimately reduces all things into nothingness. So this is Suzuki, DT Suzuki saying, this is superficially how it appears. It's not how it actually is, but it is how it appears when we first encounter the Heart Sutra. Kaz continues, from Honolulu I went to San Francisco where I sat with Shunru Suzuki and his group, abbot of Sokoji, a Zen temple for Japanese Americans. He was also teaching meditation to non-Japanese students. One of them, a relaxed young man with an unshaven face and long hair, who might then have been called a beatnik, showed me around the city in his old truck. The interior of his vehicle was ornately decorated. A small Buddha figure was glued onto the centre of the dashboard. He would turn his ignition key, offer incense to the Buddha and take off. While driving, he listened to a tape recording of a group chanting the Heart Sutra. I must admit that it sounded rather weird to my ears. This was my initiation into the 60s counterculture in the United States. In 1977, I moved to the United States to be a scholar in residence at the San Francisco Zen Center. I sat regularly, but not as seriously as most of my fellow meditators. Chanting the Hat Sutra in Japanese and English was part of our daily center's routine, just as it is for us. And then he also quotes here Carl Brunehol's um, 
from the Heart Attack Sutra, which is another good book on the Heart Sutra, the Heart Attack Sutra, and how he describes people's first experience of the Heart Sutra. In brief, what we can safely say about the Heart Sutra is that it is completely crazy. If we read it, it does not make any sense. Well, maybe the beginning and the end make sense, but everything in the middle sounds like a sophisticated form of nonsense, which can be said to be the basic feature of the Prajnaparamita sutras in general. So I thought today I would just really look at the first sentence of the Heart Sutra, because there's a lot just in the first sentence. <clears throat> Most of you know this, Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva, when deeply practicing Prajnaparamita, clearly saw that all five aggregates are empty and thus relieved all suffering. So it begins with Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva. Uh, so we often use the word Bodhisattva in two ways. We use it often to describe ourselves, that we have taken the vows to relieve suffering, that we are Bodhisattvas, we've taken that vow ordinary beings doing the best that we can to be of benefit and to do so without expecting results, uh, without needing results, and without expecting to reach an end to that, that we would just do it into our last breath. And then we also use the word bodhisattva for these um, sort of archetypal Buddha figures like Manjushri, Samantabhadra, and Avalokiteshvara is another example of fully awakened beings who endlessly are caring about and listening to the cries of the world. So the sutra begins with Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva, which is a good indication to us that even though the sutra sounds uh, has a cool sound, almost a cold sound to it, negation, 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 that we can confident, be confident that the whole point of it is actually to cultivate compassion. So we can just keep that in our minds, even as sort of unpacking the kind of deconstructing aspect of the Hat Sutra, it's all for the benefit of beings, it's to relieve our own distress and the distress of others and to cultivate joy. So, Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva, while deeply practicing Prajnaparamita, so deeply practicing is right there at the very beginning. So this sutra is not about theory. Well, I mean, it's got theory, but it's not only about theory. It's, it's taking the theory and bringing the theory into our body so that it permeates every fibre of our being. We practice on the cushion and we practice off the cushion. We deeply practice, which means we really try to apply the teachings to every circumstance, not just the easy ones, but particularly the hard ones. So deeply practicing prajna paramita, Prajna wisdom, paramita perfection, so deeply practicing the perfection of wisdom. Clearly saw that all five aggregates are empty. So that's really what I want to talk about today. 
all five aggregates are empty. In Sanskrit, the word is skanda. I think it's a very instructive word because skanda means heap, like pile. So we think of it like a pile of rocks. A pile of rocks. The pile doesn't exist without the rocks. It's not a pile of pile. You can't get piles and make piles out of piles. You can only make piles out of something like rocks. So the rocks are necessary for the pile to, be, to exist, and there's really no such thing as an actual pile. There's only a pile of something. So the word skanda, which means pile or heap, right there is giving us an indication of what this, this teaching emptiness might be about. So the, the five aggregates of form, sensation, perception, mental reaction and consciousness, which we chant in the sutra. So we'll take, take each of them, but particularly the first one is the easiest one to work with, and we can work with it on a number of levels. So if we take the example of, say, paper, there's a common example that's used. Thich Nhat Hanh uses this example a lot. We take a sheet of paper and look into what it is made of. Of course, we can just keep on going and keep on going, but for this purpose, let's just take four things. Let's say paper is made out of wood from a tree, water to maybe like mash it down into pulp, people to do the work, and machinery or equipment to make it possible. We just take those four things. Paper, we could say, is made of, you know, if it's a heap, we think of the four things in this heap, are trees, are water, people, and equipment. The paper is not made of paper. It's made of things other than paper. It's made of non-paper elements. And uh, that, that's not too hard. I mean, that's cognitively quite easy to understand. It's a little bit more emotionally difficult to understand when we apply it to things that we have a reaction to, when we apply it to things that we're attached to, or we apply it to things that we have aversion to. In the simplicity of just a conversation about what paper's made out of, it's really pretty simple. But that's not where our practice, where, where we're being called to practice. We're being called to practice on the exact things that are difficult. So if we take this, um, this process of the way we describe paper being made of non-paper elements, then we can begin to contemplate this in our daily life and apply it to things, first apply it to things that are easy to apply it to, and slowly but surely apply it to things that are more difficult. So the more difficult things, as I said, are the things that we have an emotional response to. We maybe find it more difficult to apply this to people uh, when we have a strong feeling of attachment or aversion to those people. But this is the exact place to, to apply it to. If there's a person you're having difficulty with, you say, what is that person made of? Who is it that I am having difficulty with? 
And as we examine it in the same way as we do with paper, we discover that, that the person that we're feeling an attachment or an aversion to doesn't actually exist as an entity, really. They only exist in a conventional way, or provisional way, but they are made up of all sorts of things. And we could take four things again as an example. They're made up of their parents. They're made up of their culture. They're made up of their decade that they happen to be living in. And maybe made up of just uh, personality qualities that nobody knows exactly how these come to form. This is sort of the first level of contemplating that everything is made of elements other than itself. Everything is made of non-self elements. And of course that includes ourself. That we are made up of everything other, that neti is made of everything other than neti. Neti cannot be located. When you look closely, there's no location. So there's nobody to be too attached to, to feel one has to defend or has to promote or any of those things. It softens, softens our grip and softens our pushing away energy, softens all of our energy. So that sort of first level just helps us to not uh, sort of reify things, to see things as fixed. It just helps and soften our relationship to objects, people, animals, events, to soften our um, our clinging or our aversion to them. And then when we're, we're sort of doing that, we can take it a little step further, like a second level of contemplating that we are made of non-self elements, and that is to see that the elements that are the non-self elements, they themselves too are made of everything other than themselves. So with the example of paper, we say paper is made of wood, water, people and machinery. But if we look at the wood from the tree, we find that there's no such thing as an actual tree. There's just the different non-tree elements that make up a tree. The same as so for water, the same as so for the people and for the machinery. And so it's like infinite regression. We cannot find anything that is an actual, that actually exists. Everything is made of elements other than itself and those elements are made of things other than themselves. So our task is to verify this for ourselves, to really know this for ourselves beyond trying to just remember it as an idea. And I was thinking of how Dogen likes this word verification. Dogen didn't tend to use words like Kensho. He tended to use the word verification, which if I remember is show and SHO. And that show is the same, it's different to the show in Kensho. It's a show that's used um, still just in conventional language in Japan for things like your driver's license, it's your verification. Um, maybe Emmy might know this because you're a 
for a Japanese speaking person. So verification, um, verify it for ourselves so that we really know it in our bodies and no one could convince us otherwise. Maybe we keep that little bit of um, beginner's mind there. Not Nobody can convince us otherwise in a rigid sense, but a, a kind of a deep, more a sense of deep faith in this teaching. That everything is made of elements other than itself and that those elements are made of elements other than themselves and so on. And Dogen also said, you know, very well known, verification and practice are not two. So we, we verify it through our practice. Practicing is how the verification occurs. It's not you just need to practice, so you don't need to verify. It doesn't mean that, although people sometimes interpret Dogen that way. It's the process of practice allows for verification to occur and verification is put into practice. The two just fold into each other. And once verified, then we work on deepening that verification so that it becomes a reflex. It's our, it's our default. Our default is to see that everything is empty of itself and therefore any clinging or any aversion is softened. And when we do have uh, a kind of attachment to it, we understand that that attachment is attachment to something that's not exactly there. So we still, it's not as if we don't have the emotional response of attachment and aversion, we still do, but it doesn't quite have the, the strength because we, we don't uh, forget. We don't forget that the thing that we're feeling attachment to is provisional. The thing that we have aversion to is provision. So uh, we can apply the same process to the other aggregates, which are all mental aggregates. So the first was form. We use the example of paper. But it also applies to sensations, perceptions, mental reactions, and consciousness. So just sort of briefly to look at each of those, Sensations is just the sort of input of sound, light, smells, sensations. That that process is um, that that process is also made up. Of the light that comes in is made up of complex, you know, just complex. Elements, we can go on and on about the elements and make it possible for there to be light or for there to be sound or for there to be an ear that can hear it or for a mind to register its existence. So the sensations we have, as strong and real as they seem, are made of non-sensation elements. They're made of all these other aspects. And our perceptions, uh, our perception of whether something is positive or negative or neutral, that process is dependent upon all our life experiences that determines whether we see something as positive, negative or neutral and dependent on the species that we happen to be. What is positive for one is negative for another. 
and our mental reactions are, the, the labelling, the words that we place on things, and all of that is dependent upon a vast array of other conditions. Our age, our language, our culture. And the mental reactions are the sense of myself and what I think about this thing, how I'm going to think, speak or act in relation to it. We've talked a lot about the storehouse consciousness. All of that is influenced by all those factors. So we can slowly but surely take these five aggregates and examine them for ourselves in this way. So in a very practical way, when we say something like, this happened to me, we can understand when we say this happened to me, that actually it didn't actually happen to me. <laughs> it conventionally happened to me, but actually it didn't really happen to me. Everything other than it happened. It can help us not be too caught up in the events of our life. Not to dismiss our lives at all. Not at all about dismissing our lives. Not dismissing what happens to others as well, but to hold it with a little bit more lightness. This thing happened to me. It's just a convention. It actually didn't happen. It didn't happen. It didn't happen to me. So we could say fundamentally that the theme of the Heart Sutra is the basic groundlessness of our experience. And to have that with us all the time really relieves distress and actually brings great joy because it's just like this... It's a, it's a mystery. Everything is a mystery. Everything is in flux. It can't be known. Everything's folding into itself and into each other. Everything's just folding. All the non-self elements made of non-self elements are just folding, folding back into each other. It makes everything seem so brilliant. So I want to read a little bit again from Kaz. Just a, an example of this process. Kaz says, When we see an apple, we perceive and recognise it as an apple. Enjoy its shape, colour, smell and touch. We desire to eat it. Consider, consider whether, whether it is right to do so. Pick it up and possibly decide to take a bite. Alternatively, we may not eat it because we see a bruise or remember that it is the last remaining fruit and we want to leave it for someone else. This is an example of how the five streams, he uses the term streams for five aggregates here, the five streams of body, heart and mind work together. We make countless decisions and take numerous actions by means of the entwining five streams at any given time. Although the five streams work as an inseparable entity, it is useful to meditate to see these streams as five distinct elements. And then he goes on to, to describe how we can sit in our zazen and just look at each of the five aggregates carefully and notice, notice them in ourselves. Uh, I want to share a story that I can't remember where I heard the story, but I like it. 
And it's a cautionary tale about how we relate to the Heart Sutra to not relate to it in a cold way. There's a cool aspect to the Heart Sutra and there's a warm aspect to the Heart Sutra. So the story goes something like this. There was a monk who um, was meditating for many years in a cave on the Heart Sutra and other Buddhist teachings and he was supported by an elderly woman who provided his meals. She would bring them to him or have someone bring them up to him. And she did this for a long time as her devotion to the practice. And at some point she decided she wanted to test the monk. She was aware he'd been there by himself and she wanted to kind of check whether all of her devotion was for a good cause, you know, was, was because this monk was deepening in his practice. So she sent a young woman to see if she could seduce him. And of course, you know, we could change the genders around, but I'll just keep the traditional story. So the young woman goes up to the cave where the monk is and tries to seduce him. And his response to her is to say, uh, I am like a withered tree. There is nothing you can do to move me and refuses to engage with her. And so the girl, the young woman, feels that she has done her job and she goes back to the old woman and tells the old woman, assuming that the old woman will be quite pleased that the monk was not tempted. But the old woman's face all scrunches up and she scowls and she's not really happy about this result at all. And she goes up to the cave and says to the, to the monk, you need to leave. You need to go find a teacher and study the Heart Sutra more thoroughly. You, you're only seeing the cold side of the Heart Sutra. And the monk is kind of confused and said, but I, I resisted the temptation. And she said, yes, but you mistreated this young woman. Why didn't you offer her a cup of tea? Why didn't you make her food and provide bedding for her so she could sleep for the night? She traveled so far to, to benefit you. And, uh, and so off the monk went, realizing that in fact he was misunderstanding the Heart Sutra. So I, lo I love that story. We don't forget the form side, we don't forget the conventional side when we um, study emptiness. I brought another book along. Living by Vow by uh, Shohaku Okamura, another book that I would recommend. It goes through a number of the sutras that we chant and study in our Soto lineage. And uh, I want to read a little bit of his words here. Buddhism is not pessimistic nihilism because the Buddha also taught there is a way to liberation. We can make a peaceful, stable foundation for our lives. It's called nirvana. It is not a particular state or condition of our minds, but rather a way of life based on impermanence, impermanence and egolessness. In every moment, we must awaken again to the impermanent reality of our lives. 
Everything is always changing and there is no substance. In Mahayana Buddhism, this is called emptiness. So important to remember that the word emptiness, although it sounds as if it's saying void, it's not saying void. It's not saying nothing. But I think it's a good word because it requires that we have to really examine its meaning. It requires us to, to really see. Uh, like I, I remember when I was first practicing, I thought of emptiness as the interior of the cave, an empty cave. That's how I first understood it. Emptiness is about the void, the space inside of the cave. And the late, then later I realized, oh, no, it includes the cave. It includes the wet walls of the cave. It includes the moss that's on the cave. It includes the darkness in the cave and the little bit of light that's penetrating inside the cave. That was a very important moment for me, was understanding emptiness in that way. And here's uh, another passage. New leaves are coming out on the trees. They show us that time passes and everything changes. Now winter to spring and soon spring to summer. Life always changes. It's always new and it's always fresh. We see everything around us change and yet we believe that we do not. We believe that I am. I am the same person I was 40 years ago, 20 years ago, yesterday. I am the same person tomorrow. I will be the same person tomorrow. But the reality is that we are always changing. Our bodies and minds constantly change. So in the spring, the leaves appear and birds sing to tell us, awake, awake to this reality. Everything is moving, changing. Everything is ever fresh each moment. This is Avalo Kiteshvara helping us see things clearly as they are. And he goes on here too. Everyone we encounter is Avalokiteshvara. Our parents who took care of us, our friends, our competitors, and even enemies can be Avalokiteshvara. They are here to show us the reality of life. We should be thankful. We should appreciate ourselves. All people we encounter, all things in this universe, all of this is Avalokiteshvara telling us to wake up and not be caught in egocentric delusion, encouraging us to become free from illusion and see our life force straight on. That is Avalokiteshvara. This sutra is speaking from our life force. I think I'll stop there. So uh, I think maybe I will, in another talk, in a bit of a while, take some other parts of the Heart Sutra and maybe over over time slowly work through the whole of the Heart Sutra. So uh, I'd recommend that you can work with it two ways. You can take it line by line and really, you know, examine it for yourself. And you can also, when we chant it in the mornings, just let it flow through you without without uh, trying to understand it, just sort of let it seep into you. Both ways are, are very good ways. <laughs>